In this episode of the QEH podcast, we're talking to the head of QEH Juniors, David Kendall. David's about to talk us through what it's like being a head and a history teacher, what his journey was from being a student to stepping into a career of education, and we get to hear about values-based education, which is a simple but very effective method of instilling values in the boys. So come with me now as we step into the world of QEH Juniors with David Kendall. David, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. We're recording this during the Easter break. So tell me, how are you today? I'm really well, thanks very much. I've had a very busy couple of days because my youngest son graduated yesterday from uh, university over in Cardiff. So uh, big celebrations because it's 18 months after he actually passed his degree. We actually had the final ceremony yesterday. So that was great and really good to, to go and see him with, uh, with his sister. And, uh, and spend some time with them. Gosh, so 18 months ago, so clearly pandemic affected that, I'm presuming. Tell me what it was he was studying there. He was studying uh, sports psychology. So he's just done a BSc in it and he's just finished his MSc. So in a few months time, he's getting his master's graduation. So two graduations in one year, um, which I don't, I don't know if it's a record, but it, <laughs> it seems a very fast turnaround. But it, it was very interesting because the when he was there, a lot of people he was graduating with all have jobs now. So you know, it's 18 months have gone by. Normally when you graduate, it's usually a few months later or even just over a month when, after you finish university. And, and, and there he was talking to people, introducing me to people, saying, oh, they're doing this, they're doing that. So it's really good to see how, how their careers had changed and uh, what they've done with the degree. And you mentioned a daughter there as well. What stage in her education journey is she at? So Megan's uh, 24 years old now and uh, she works uh, over in Plymouth. She's uh, working in a nursery in Plymouth, loves working with children. So uh, my eldest son, Tom, is a teacher in Birmingham. So it, it runs in the family. Uh, Michael has vowed never to become a teacher, but um, wait and see. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about then how you got into teaching yourself. I mean, what, what was your own educational experience and, and how did that take you into the world of education yourself for a career? Well, rather like Michael, I vowed never to become a teacher because both my parents were teachers. And I was taught by them, which is a mixed blessing, it has to be said. But my best friend at, at school, a guy called Jeremy, his father was a head and my father was a deputy head. And we both vowed never to become teachers. And he is now a deputy proctor up in, uh, up in Dundee. And here am I as a head down in, in Bristol. So, you know, never say never. But uh, yeah, I, I, I went to university and left not really knowing what to do. I, I toyed with going into the military and, and, and looked into that and then thought, mm, I'm not too sure about that. And I almost had a gap year in, in reverse. Uh, I went uh, to work in the East End of London, working with at-risk children in a, in a Christian mission. There are a number of quite famous ones down there. This was one of the not-so-famous ones, and it was, was really lacking finance and support at the time. But it was a wake-up call. Uh, for me, I'd had a very, very comfortable childhood and a wonderful time at university and suddenly to be thrust into 1980s, early 80s recession hit London, East London, pre-Canary Wharf, pre-Dockland uh, redevelopment was, was quite an eye-opener and quite shocking. And it was there, actually, I, I, when I started, it's just a person said to me, you're just a natural. Um, I took some children. I don't know if you know, you can go to, you can walk under the Thames from the Isle of Dogs over to Greenwich. I don't know if you've ever done that through the tunnel, um, which is great fun. And we took some children down. They'd never been there. They lived in Plasto, Newham, and they'd never been over to Greenwich. So we took them over to the Cutty Sark. I was telling the story, the story of Tamishanta, and, and this person, this social worker, said to me, this, 
you're a natural. What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you in this job in the middle of nowhere in London? So um, I went off to become a teacher. Yeah, so that's how it started. So then how did you end up at QEH Juniors in that case? Well, desire to become a head, basically. Being um, head of history in a number of schools, culminating with being head of history at Westminster Underschool in London, uh, which is the junior school to Westminster. And that was a, a fantastic institution to be in. And it was there, actually, the head there sat me down one day and talked about career development. And he said, you know, you can be a head if you want to be a head. And um, I thought, OK, let's give it a go. But it's not just sort of a seamless transition. It's, you know, I wanted to make sure it's what I wanted to because... You go into teaching to teach your subject. You, I, I, I'm a historian, so I went in because I love bringing history alive for children. And suddenly when you go up the greasy pole, you don't, you know, you lose a lot of your lessons. And, and, and it's one thing I, I learned very quickly is, is that, well, there's a head of history. I'm not the head of history. I'm just a history teacher now. And I have to listen to them and take orders from them. So I'm not directing the history. But it gives you an opportunity to direct a school. And then I wanted to move west. I, I, I didn't know Bristol that well. I'd been here a few times, but I didn't really know the city that well. But I like the idea of being ahead of a school that's part of a, a bigger organisation. Many of the independent, small independent schools um, have had a tough time over the past you know, decade or so. And consequently, they've... They, some of them have struggled, some are very, very successful. It depends where you are in the country. Um, but I wanted it to be somewhere where I, I, I knew that most, if not all the boys, were going to go on to the next school. And you're not spending hours of your time having to build relationships with other schools and, and, and deal with all their foibles. And my, last, my, my last school in London, um, Newton Prep, where I was deputy head, sort of pastoral side of things, administration. There was another deputy head there whose sole job was called senior school transfer. It's to find the right school for the for the child and keep building relationships up. And that's just one person's job doing that all the time. So, um, yeah, it was, a. Uh, I, I thought, yeah, QH suits me perfectly. Now, of course, you indicate there that you're a history teacher. Um, I'd love to understand a bit more about that. How do you go about being a head and being a teacher at the same time? Because they're, they're two different skills there, aren't they? Very much so. In fact, when you become a head, you're, you, you have this very good talk and they say, if it, you know, what, what do you think of this teacher who is late for lessons, doesn't always get the marking done? doesn't prepare things and it, you know, you'll say well you'll, you'll have to get rid of them you have to you, know, you have to have talked with them and I say well that's a head because the head's job is to lead the school and take the school and the teaching has to take second place through um, taking on a, a new member of staff this year I've managed to reduce my teaching commitment down which means I've got more time to be ahead but it also means we've got more time to deliver hopefully the boys like them, so better lessons for the boys and uh, more enjoyable lessons, certainly, for them. Without me thinking to myself, I've got that going on in my head all the time. I can refocus really on what's happening. So it is a balance, though. But I think it's important for a head to teach. You've got to be aware of the children and you've got to know them. So I teach all the children, years five and six. So they all see, all boys at the top of school see me, and then I will pop into years three and four classrooms to, to touch base with the teachers there and, uh, and, and see the children. So it's important to have that physical relationship with them so you're actually getting to know them and build a rapport with them and a bond with them. Otherwise, you can easily become just this figurehead who just 
has an office somewhere and you see at the beginning and end of the day. So when you're teaching history then to year fives and year sixes, I think you said, which period in history do you enjoy teaching the most? But also I'm going to ask a double question here. Which period in history do you find the boys in particular like to uh, like to learn about? And are they both the same, that which you like to teach and that which they like to learn? I think it depends on the child. I, I've, I've always thought, you know, it, it, it's wrong to say that boys always like wars. To a certain extent, they like the action side of things. But one of the best historians I ever had really loved looking at industry and inventions and population and, and, and health and things like that and medicine. And there's always a little gory aspect to it. You know, if you're doing about cholera in the 19th century, the boys love it because it's, got, it's, it's so disgusting, but it's, it, it, it's an enjoyable thing for them to teach. Um, I don't have a favourite period as such. I, I, I try and find interest in almost... I've, I've got some periods I'm not very, I don't know a lot about. So uh, there's, there's, there's areas where I think to myself, well, I'm not... I'm not particularly keen on that <laughs> simply because I'm not I haven't bothered to learn about it well enough. But I enjoy doing the Second World War with the boys because we can reference people who are still alive. So my parents both lived through the Second World War. And you know, they the boys can go out and see great grandparents who lived during the Second World War and talk to people. So it isn't something that's just in, in history books or on a documentary. It's actually somebody living and breathing. But of course that will that will soon pass. You know, with the next decade that, that will all go. And that will, rather like the First World War, become part part and parcel of, 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 of history the children can no longer reach out to and touch. But um, by then they'll be talking about the 60s and 70s and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what is it about history in particular that kind of caught your imagination in the first place and, you know, uh, encouraged you to go into teaching history? My father was a history teacher and he, uh, he, he taught in secondary modern schools. So he had to really bring the subject alive to children. And he'd, he'd just make it as, I remember watching him teach and he would be charging around the classroom and just engaging with them as much as possible. And I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's a, you know, <laughs> those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> and, and, you know, present, present situation is reflecting that to a certain extent. And those, <laughs> yeah. who those who do study history are forced to stand by why, those, why it's being repeated. It's, it's more the enjoyment. It's getting children to say to yourself, well, well, here I am, but where have I come from? Why are these buildings like this? Why is Bristol like this, this way? Why did people pull down Colston's statue a couple of years ago? Why, why did these things happen? Let's get an understanding of the past. Let's try and build where we are in the world by understanding how our nation was formed, why this the city of Bristol is the way it is. You know, if you want to do something micro, why is the SS Great Britain there? What was life like? Because actually, you know, you, you talk about I was I was looking at my mother-in-law, and she lived in Epping with her when she was born. Then in in the late twenties, she was living with her eight-year-old great-grandmother. Incredible that somebody had lived that long. So that lady was born in sort of the you know the the, the early nineteenth century. So the history, you, you talk about things being years ago, but there's somebody who knew somebody who was around before the Crimean War, just after Victoria was crowned. So it's, you think it's way in the past, but actually there aren't so many connections. And I think it's also the connectivity that certain inventions have trigger effects that cause other things, that cause other things, that cause other things. And, and then it, nothing is ever in isolation there's always things going on and these will have an effect and have an effect and have an effect, which will then trigger other things 
happening. And it's getting the boys to see that it's not just linear. There are all these things going on in different directions as a result of just one something that happens. Some things are very, very good. Sometimes they're very bad, but they, they are all interconnected. So let me get this right then. You followed your father into the world of teaching and you followed him into the world of teaching history. But you said that he was at a secondary modern school, which is, yeah. I imagine, a very different kind of school to an independent prep. If your father was to step into QEH Juniors, how would he see some significant differences to the school that he taught at? Well, the technology to begin with would be something that would change. Just be, you know, he, he started in 1953 with a blackboard and he left in 1987, still with a blackboard. Um, I think there was one computer in the entire school at that point. Whereas, so that side of teaching has just changed completely. But I think you'd recognise a lot of the things that we do at the school. I mean, the, the expectation, the behaviour of the boys, the respect, manners, the willingness to work hard, uh, to commit oneself. Uh, those are the sort of things that instilled, he instilled into people. And, and, and he'd he expect that, you know, he'd expect me to do, to do the same. I think the, the key is, is that you are influenced by your parents in many, many ways. And, and what I got from my father, especially, and from my mum, but especially from dad, was someone who just was totally committed as a school teacher. Um, he, he's, he used to say, never give up on a child. And, um, you know, if that child wants to work, learn, no matter how weak they are, don't give up on them. And in certainly in the secondary modern world, pre-comprehensive, there was a lot of, well, you know, where are you going to go with your life? But he would always try and get the very, very best for them. Um, you know, pulling, kicking, but also ensuring that there's many opportunities for them. So, you know, give them opportunities to go and work in garages to become mechanics and things like that, if it's, um, or, or work in certain environments to give them opportunities to see what's, what else was out there. Um, you know, he understood that history is, is there, but it's not the be-all and end-all of life. You know, a world full of history teachers would be a very boring place, it certainly would. So it sounds in some ways like he was a bit ahead of his time because, you know, I'm thinking back to, well, even in the 80s, where appreciating the fact that your father wasn't a, a careers guidance officer, but careers guidance back then kind of was very, very limited compared to how it is now in 2022. Do you feel like he was ahead of his time back then? I think he was. He was lucky in that he, he, he worked in a very good school. It was a uh, there was a, a group of teachers there who, when the uh, the grammar school and the, and the secondary model amalgamated, most most of the senior teachers became senior leaders of both schools, and that was quite interesting. But they were, I, mean, I think, about you, you are influenced by these people, and you, you they 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 were just so very de dedicated to doing the best for the children at the school always, and um, and that's left you know with me. So my father would take a lot of trips in holidays. It was a good excuse for going horse riding or climbing or sailing. But I've always, and until I came here, actually, um, I've always taken trips in the school holidays because it's something I love doing. It's just, yeah, I've got a lovely long summer holiday. Let's use a week of it to go canoeing on the River Wyme or whatever it might be. And, and the senior school especially, and the junior school, but especially senior school do a lot, a lot of trips uh, in the holiday time. And uh yeah, I was saying junior school, we have done them as well. Um, obviously, the ski, ski trips and also outdoor pursuit trips. But COVID put paid to a lot, um, continuing that for a couple of years. So it's uh, yeah, a lot of the sites are just starting to build up again uh, and open up. David, what do you look for in a QEH juniors boy? Oh, that's... <sighs> if, if I could present you with some of the children, I'd say that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an inquisitiveness it's not always about confidence because um, confidence can can mask a lot of things. I'm, I'm I'm a big believer in um, 
there was a book called Quiet, brilliant book called Quiet. And I tried Susan Cain wrote it, and it's about the power of the introvert. Uh, and it's a brilliant book. And I often suggest this sometimes uh, to, I've done in the past to parents who've said to me, well, my son's not very this, not. I said, well, just read Quiet by Susan Cain because they don't have to be brash and full of confidence. They've got to have an eagerness and they've got to have a willingness to learn. Um, do you want to learn? And I can see this in boys because obviously you test them to come into the school, but a test is just a certain measure of their ability, as any test is. And I'm a really big believer in holistic education. So I'm looking at the whole child. What, 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 is, what is the person this child is going to become? What is the potential there in them? And how can we enable them to flourish? How can we get the very best out of them to help them be the best they can be? And, you know, they're sort of trite phrases, but in actual fact, that's the truth. You look at a child and say, yeah, what's the best I can do with you? So when we read about QEH juniors, we can also read about something called values-based education. Could you explain to us what that is and whether or not that ties into what you were just talking about as well? Yeah, very much so. So uh, value-based education uh, is a brainchild of two people, Neil and Jane Hawkes. Uh, Neil Hawkes is the mastermind behind it. Neil is his wife. And they pioneered this in the late 90s, early 2000s in primary schools in, in Oxfordshire. So basically, every organisation has its values. Um, you go into any, any, any including P&O, you know, you, you walk in and say, these are our values on the wall. Well, that's having a set of values which people can read and either believe or not believe. Values-based education is actually having values that actually matter and are embedded within the school within the structure of the school. So they're not just pretty words on a wall. So if we say we are empathetic, do we actually, are we actually empathetic? Um, if, we, if we are resilient, are we resilient as children? And what Neil and Jane saw, um, Neil was teaching, he was the head of a school in Oxfordshire at the time, and he saw a lot of children who, for whom their family life were not giving them the core human values that he felt mattered, that he felt were really intrinsically made you part of being a human being. So if, if they weren't getting it from the family, they've got to get it from somewhere. Otherwise, they're going to go off into society and, and, and they're going to be very, very disaffected as individuals. So what he did then was it was began teaching these, these values and, and placing the heart of everything that's done at the school. We've got a whole series of values on our, on our values tree. But you know, to me, the key one is kindness. And it, it, it's essential. It is. It is. It is something you should have. Is 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 kindness covers respect, courtesy, um, thoughtfulness, all these sort of things. That because if you don't have that in, in your actions, if you're not being kind, well, what are you doing? Because that's going to have a very negative effect on another person, but also on you, because it's not good for you to be unkind. So, with that, looking at the child, is that I'm not judging a child on their values, but I'm saying to myself, will this child? understand that this is the way we behave. Uh, this is the way we act here. Uh, so when you come to our school, you have to adhere to the set of values that we want you to do. And what we do with the boys then is when they're out um, doing something for us, what we'll say is they say, well, thank you for showing the value of. Uh, you might not just say thank you for being kind. You say, well, thank you for showing the values of determination or Mr. Thomas, the head of sport or Mrs. Hall. Um, head of uh, the drama and music at the school will we'll come along and say, so-and-so did well in this. And I will just go quietly up to say, oh, you know, I heard that. You know, thank you for showing the, the value of such determination there. And the boys then have start to create an eth ethical vocabulary. They get a diet. They understand and associate certain behaviours with certain values. 
And likewise, if we have to tell a child off, uh, which does happen because they're learning, they're children, you sit down with them and just say, well, what values weren't you showing? Now, what weren't you doing there? So let's think about what you weren't doing and, and get them to go through the, the, their actions and say, right, look at all these consequences that have come about this. And all you had to do was to have made a different choice at that point. And yeah, yeah. So you're training them to become young adults. You're hopefully getting them this idea in incorporated into them so when they leave us at the end of year six they've got a good sense of values obviously go through teenage years then where they become very selfish and very self-centered as all teenagers are and then blossom again at the ages of 17 18 19 but hopefully at that point they will have had that engagement within them so I'm really glad you mentioned about, you know, those occasions when you might need to tell a child off because, you know, in, in every school that's going to happen. It doesn't matter what school it is, but also some of those best lessons that we learn in life as children are those occasions where we've done something wrong. We get told off for it, but we learn as a result of it. Very, very much so. And it, it's a case of sitting. I mean, for example, we do if two people are upset with one another. Often what we'll do is, is do conflict resol resolution with them. And we just sit, sit them both down to talk, talk things through. And you think, well, yeah, that's, that's what you've got to do as an adult. You're going to go into the big wide world of work. You're not going to get on with everybody in your office. Particularly, you've got to learn to get on with people. You might not like them, but you've got to learn to get on with them. And that's something we've got to do from a, quite a young age, that you've got to tolerate and understand and empathise and respect that other people are going to have different views to you, different behaviours to you, and you've got to work with them, not work against them. David, we need to bring this episode to a close in a minute, but if anyone's heard anything and they want to find out more about QEH Juniors, what's the best way for them to do that? Just uh, contact the school. So it's uh, juniors at qhbristol.co.uk. Uh, you can ring us up on the school, school number and talk to Tessa Raymond, who is our admissions officer here in the junior school, or Roberta McLeod, who is the head's PA and our school secretary. And both of them will be able to give you far more information. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, David, especially during Easter holidays. I hope you continue to have a good break and then get a refreshing start to the summer term coming up. Yep, I certainly will. It's, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's the best term at school. It really is. So that was David Kendall, head of QEH Juniors. Thank you, David, for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Really good of you to give up your time, especially in the Easter holidays. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.